Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. From the High Center Studios of the recipient of so much of my tuition money, Messiah College in Grantham, Pennsylvania, this is the Wave Improvement Leads Home Podcast, a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host, author and award-winning historian, John Fia. Welcome, everyone, to episode 23 of the Wave Improvement Leads Home Podcast. It is good to have you with us. Okay, Drew. We're going to do something a little bit different on today's show. All right. We are going to start off with a quiz. The pop quiz from the prof. Pop quiz. You thought you were done with pop quizzes from me. I give them now. 15 years ago. (laughs) Right. Now you give them. But I'm going to grill you with some questions about what you do with your money. Um, And I'll, I'll try to jump in and answer some of these as well. Did you do, a few years ago when this was all the rage, did you do the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge? No, I did not. You did not? I did not. Did you? I did not do it, although both my daughters did. They tried to get me to do it, but I wimped out because I didn't want ice cold water dumped on my (laughs) head. Okay, so so two no's there. Okay. Have you ever bought a box of Girl Scout cookies? Absolutely. What is your favorite? Uh, I'll go with Thin Mints and throw them in the freezer. I like the Samoas. How about you, Josh? Thin mints. Josh <laughs> checks in from behind the glass. <laughs> Thin mints, yeah. Um, I love. I like the Samoas. I could eat a whole box at one time. Anyway, okay. Um, by the way, too, we have one of one of my former students, Katie Garland, who's a great public historian, actually works as a development officer at the Girl Scouts. So oh, okay. Throw that, throw that in in case. Shout out to Katie in case she's listening. Okay. Um, have you ever supported a student taking a missions trip or some other kind of service trip, uh, whether in the United States or abroad? Yes, yes, I have. Yeah, I do that all the time. Yeah. In fact, both of my daughters are raising money for trips right now. So. And, and I should add, I've, I have received donations to do that kind of work Me as too. well. You know, Me so too. Me too. It's, it's come both ways. Excellent. Okay, next question. Uh, have you ever bought a raffle ticket at a high school event, like a sporting event, or I don't know if they do them at plays or something, but you know, have you ever done that? Yes, yes, I have. Yeah, I, I, I did. I, when my daughters played sports, I bought one every week. Actually, I won like sixty-eight bucks once on a on a, on a raffle um, at my daughter's volleyball game. Have you ever given clothes to Goodwill or? community aid or salvation army or something like that yeah absolutely and in fact you know that's a that's a regular conversation as as my wife notes all of the all of the clothes in my closet that i haven't worn in a couple years asking me why they're still in the closet and so i i get that filter through and yeah i get that all the time and my answer usually is well i'm gonna lose like 20 pounds so then they'll (laughs) fit me so i don't want to get rid of them yet same thing same thing so um Obviously, and, I'm going to be the exact same size yeah. I was as a high school student. <laughs> and and I've given my money to Goodwill. I buy a lot of my clothes yep. uh, at Goodwill. Yep. It was a habit I began in graduate school and, and just continue to this day. Okay. Have you ever dropped change into the pot of a Salvation Army Santa Claus? Yep. Yeah, yeah. I try to. I mean, although it's harder now because uh, I, I carry change so much yeah. less than I used to. Exactly. Right? I mean, I, I pay with... Credit card, and actually, I'm, I'm really excited. I just started using the Apple Pay on my iPhone, so I just wave my phone at the grocery store now. And so I don't, I don't, you know, the, you know, they're they're often those Santa Clauses are often outside of grocery stores. And I don't, ha- I don't have change in my pocket to give, so I almost feel bad. I wish they, I wish they had like a card swipe. They should, they yeah. should get. That's a good idea if you're listening there, there from the Salvation Army. Um, there's a there's a tip. Now this is going to be a, a local Pennsylvania question, and I know you're from Pennsylvania, and I've lived here for about 15 years, so. Were you ever involved in the Pennsylvania Thon? 
when you were in school. Right, yeah, that's associated with Penn State University, right? Yeah, I'm sorry, Penn yeah. State. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, I've, I actually have never been involved with that one, although I know, I, I know plenty of people who It's work. a fascinating program that Penn State does. It's, a, it's an all-night dance marathon, right? Mm-hmm. And not only do they do it at Penn State, but they do it, local high schools have their mini-thon. My yeah. daughters do it at their high school. You know, they stay up all night and... Um, it, it's not only dancing, but they have, you know, other events too, mm-hmm. you know, like dodgeball and. Well, you know, and it, it's the largest college charity event in, in the country, I think. And it raises money for. I know it's cancer research. Cancer research. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Okay. One more question. Have you ever given money to your alma mater? We already know that from the opening, <laughs> but. Well, that's the, I, I think I was more referring to the, to the tuition dollars, but, yeah. but actually, yeah, you know, I, um. I, I, and maybe this is a shout out to the alumni giving um, organization here at here at Messiah College. I think they do a really good job. You know, so often those alumni organizations call you up and ask for big bucks, and well, I don't sure. have the big bucks to give. But you know, Messiah does a good job, and they have very specific things that they're trying to raise money for. And so, um, actually, you know, my nephew's a student here, and and I remember last year they were asking for for very small donations for um, care packages for first year students during uh, during their first finals week okay. I think was what it was so so I was, yeah of course yeah I give money and, and just assume it's going to my nephew well you're probably wondering why we're asking all of these questions yeah, that's a, that's today. a, a yeah. long introduction some of you some of you uh, maybe have already figured this out well if you haven't guessed we're going to be spending this episode of the way of improvement leads home podcast talking about giving in America. And as usual, we're going to tackle this issue historically from the perspective of the fields of the history of philanthropy and charity. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I'm kind of thinking about now that some of these questions that you chose for this uh, for this mini pop quiz. And, and, and one of the things I've tried to develop, not really so much a young adult, but as a, a early early in adulthood here is to be really mindful about where I give my money. I, I you know, I, I've come to realize and part of this has to do with some of the work I've done and the work my wife has done. That not every tra- charity is created equal. Some charities, unfortunately, don't do nearly as much good as others. So I do try to be really mindful about where I'm giving my money and where I'm not giving my money. Yeah. And part of that, I think, has to be a historical question. It yeah. comes from de- delving into the history of philanthropy. And and once again, like so many of our episodes, I think that this history has the potential to make a big impact. Yeah, it's just, it's just you don't even think about that. We, we give, whether it be money or time and so forth, and... You don't really think of that as a historical kind of something you historicize, but it's such a day-to-day part of of our lives, you know, in terms of charity and giving and philanthropy and so forth. I just recently learned about this entire field of the history of philanthropy. Uh, as some of you know, I wrote this book on the history of the American Bible Society. And, you know, I wrote it as an early 19th century historian, at least the initial chapters, as an American religious historian. But the piece, the book really seemed to resonate with the people in this history of philanthropy community. And I never really thought even of framing the book that way. But our guide for this journey through giving in America, or the history of giving in America, will be Amanda Moniz. She is the David M. Rubenstein Curator of Philanthropy at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. She's written a lot about the history of philanthropy. She just started there as the Curator of Philanthropy. And we're really excited to talk to her today. But before we do that, speaking of giving (laughs) and charity and philanthropy and poor podcasters, (laughs) Drew, let's take care of some business here before we move on. Well, as always, we are able to bring you this podcast through the generous donations of Lisa DeGuardi and Ron Schooler, as well as our sponsor, Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. And unlike public radio, we never take a break from fundraising, <laughs> although we do try to keep our pitch a bit shorter than our NPR counterparts. And, you know, I, it, it's always hard when you tune in for the news and you're, you're hearing them fundraising. But now that I'm on the other end of that, it's, it's an important part of, the, part of the equation. But that does mean you can still become one of our sponsors. I have mugs in the closet of my study just waiting to be mailed. So if you want to either give us a monthly pledge of support or make a flat donation, just head over to thewayofimprovement.com and click support. We have mugs. We have books, books. We have even higher order gifts where you get your name announced on the program to our millions of listeners. Millions. Right? So, so get over to the site, click on support, help us out here. 
we're so appreciative for those of you who already have. Thank you so much. Again, I'll say this. I've said it a hundred times now, but we always need good American history, but we need it even more in times of great social and political change. So please do what you can to help us keep this thing going here at The Way of Improvement Leads Home. So before we get and unpack this fascinating conversation about giving and about philanthropy, I do believe you have a story to start us off, John. I recently had the chance to teach Andrew Carnegie's famous 1889 North Atlantic Review essay titled simply Wealth. As an early American historian by training, I do not get too many opportunities to teach post-Civil War United States history, but a new course I developed on Pennsylvania history has provided a rare opportunity to dip into some of the ideas that drove the Keystone State and, by extension, the nation's industrial history. Many of you know the name Andrew Carnegie. The Scottish-born Pennsylvania steel magnate worked his way up from a bobbin boy in a western Pennsylvania cotton factory to one of the two or three wealthiest men in America. In addition to his work as a robber baron or captain of industry, I guess it all depends on your perspective, Carnegie prided himself as a writer and a philosopher of industrial age America. He is perhaps best known for his so-called gospel of wealth essays, in which he argued that millionaires had the responsibility to give away their fortunes before they died. His North Atlantic Review essay was his first public exploration into this idea. Much of Carnegie's essay is informed by the teachings of Herbert Spencer, the man behind the theory of social Darwinism, and the first to use the term survival of the fittest. Under Spencer's system, Carnegie was one of the survivors, a man with unusual talents that enabled him to rise above the rabble and obtain massive amounts of wealth. And with great wealth comes great responsibility, the responsibility to advance civilization, as he put it. For Carnegie, social inequality was inevitable. Quote, the contrast between the palace of the millionaire and the cottage of the laborer has come with civilization, unquote. This change, Carnegie wrote, is not to be deplored, but welcomed. It is highly beneficial, Carnegie said, if not essential for the progress of the race. Carnegie believed that the houses of some should be homes for all that is highest and best in literature and arts, and for all the refinements of civilization, rather than that none should be so. Or to put it differently, Carnegie added, much better this great irregularity in the social structure than universal squalor. At one level, inequality was good for Carnegie because it allowed the advancement of civilization as he understood it. This was clear from the way he described the transition from the small-scale home manufacturing of the pre-Civil War era to the post-war era of industrial manufacturing. Carnegie said, Formerly, articles were manufactured at the domestic hearth in small shops which formed part of the household. The master and his apprentices worked side by side, the latter living with the master and therefore subject to the same conditions. When these apprentices rose to be master, there was little or no change in their mode of life, and they, in turn, educated in the same routine succeeded by the apprentices. There was substantial social equality. But Carnegie thought Americans could do better than this master-apprentice system. He wrote that, quote, the inevitable result of such a mode of manufacture was crude articles at high prices. Today, the world obtains commodities of excellent quality at prices which even the generation preceding this would have found incredible, unquote. For Carnegie, the trade-off was a no-brainer. 
social equality was no match for quality goods at what today we might call everyday low prices. In this sense, capitalists like Carnegie appear to know more about the nature and passions of human beings than all the theologians and philosophers combined. He was making a bet that the desire for such goods among ordinary Americans would always trump their desire to fight for such social equality. As Bernie Sanders has recently reminded us, this is a bet that all capitalists make. And if history is any indication, it is a bet that they often win. But all of this does not mean that Carnegie does not care about the plight of those who Herbert Spencer might describe as the unfit or less fit. This is where Carnegie's commitment to philanthropy enters the essay. He writes, There remains then only one mode of using great fortunes, but in this we have the true antidote for the temporary unequal distribution of wealth, the reconciliation of the rich and poor, a reign of harmony. This is another ideal, differing indeed from that of the communists in requiring only the further evolution of existing conditions, not the total overthrow of our civilization. Under its sway, we have an ideal state in which the surplus wealth of the few will become in the best sense the property of the many. Because administered for the common good, this, and this wealth, passing through the hands of a few, can be made a much more potent force for the elevation of our race than if it had been distributed in small sums to the people themselves. In Carnegie's view, the wealthy have a responsibility to fix the problem of social inequality and the unequal distribution of wealth through philanthropy. By donating money to the building of libraries and schools, Carnegie believes that he can quote-unquote elevate the race and bring about a new world order. The capitalist, this is the man who has survived through his superior talents, needs to accumulate more and more wealth so that he can distribute it in the way he sees fit. Unlike the communists, or even the socialists, or advocates of some other form of big government committed to welfare programs, the capitalist is best suited for reconciling the rich and the poor and ushering in what Carnegie calls his reign of harmony. The goal of the capitalist was to accumulate as much wealth as possible, live frugally, and give it all away to help the community. In the 1880s, Carnegie's steel business increased its production by over 800%. As historian Jackson Lears has written, much of this was squeezed directly out of the workers by keeping wages low, hours long, breaks infrequent, and the threat of layoffs constant, unquote. This should not surprise us. A more humane approach to workers would have gotten in the way of Carnegie's philanthropic efforts. Thanks, John. Our guest today is Amanda Muniz, the David M. Rubenstein Curator of Philanthropy at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. Amanda received her Ph.D. from the University of Michigan in 2008 and held a Cassius Marcellus Clay Postdoctoral Fellowship at Yale University from 2008 to 2010. Prior to joining the staff of the Smithsonian, she was the Assistant Director of the National History Center in Washington, D.C., a scholar of American humanitarianism in the revolutionary era, Dr. Moniz has received numerous grants and fellowships, including those from the Social Science Research Council and the Library Company of Philadelphia's Program on Early American Economy and Society. She is the author of From Empire to Humanity, The American Revolution and the Origins of Humanitarianism, which was published in 2016 with Oxford University Press. We are thrilled today on the podcast to have Amanda Moniz uh, with us. Uh, Amanda is a scholar of American humanitarianism and philanthropy, and she is currently the curator of philanthropy, the David M. Rubenstein Curator of Philanthropy at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. Amanda, welcome to the podcast. 
Thank you so much for having me on the show. Now, you are a historian uh, and a public historian, a museum curator uh, in the history of philanthropy. When people think about the subfields in American history, you know, we tend to think traditionally, right? Revolutionary era, 20th century. Um, um, but most people don't naturally think about the history of philanthropy as a kind of subfield of study. Tell us about this field. You know, what do historians of philanthropy study? Um, you know, maybe some of our some of our listeners maybe even need a, a definition of kind of what philanthropy is, right? So what what is it? Tell us a little bit more more about this field that you work in. I'd be happy to. And I think you're absolutely right. The history of philanthropy is relatively unknown by the general public and it's relatively understudied by historians. I find that surprising because giving is a defining American tradition and most people have their own or their family's uh, involvement in the history of, they have stories of their own or their family's involvement in the history of American philanthropy. So it is surprising it's, it's not better known. But first, let me say something about the word philanthropy. Yeah. Nowadays, we often think of philanthropy as meaning gifts of enormous amounts of money. Uh, that has not always been the definition of the word. In the 18th century, the period I study, when people used the word philanthropy, they used it to refer to a sentiment. Philanthropy in the original Greek means love of mankind or love of humanity. And people used it in that broad way to refer to their feelings. And those feelings could motivate uh, activity. It could motivate uh, gifts of money, gifts of time. So a philanthropist could be somebody who was involved in the anti-slavery movement or in prison reform or somebody who was in act active in medical charities. Uh, and I, when I use the word, I use it in that broad way to refer to how people give their time and talent and money to causes to advance the public good. But so, so you asked what we study, what do historians of philanthropy study? Yeah. I think of philanthropy as being the story of people mobilizing resources to support causes and institutions in hopes of having an impact. Mm -hmm. We study those four areas, the people involved in philanthropic causes, including leaders who set agendas, the managers of philanthropic organizations, donors and volunteers, the staff and the clients of organizations. We also study how resources are mobilized, how, how have fundraising techniques changed over time, for instance, who volunteers their time, uh, you know, like women volunteer in the, in the early republic, women volunteered uh, before or uh, they had children or after their children were grown, usually not when they have young children, for instance. Uh, we study uh, the many different kinds of causes people have supported, uh, you know, everything from anti-slavery, medical philanthropy, religious m missions, poor relief, education, the environment, arts and culture, and, and more. You know, our, our, our history is so rich with all these different movements. And finally, we study the impact uh, of giving, uh, although that's the least well-studied area and I think the hardest to get at. Yeah, I mean, there seems to be, you know, I think, I think when I think of philanthropy, right, I think about some big foundation or, you know, um, uh, Andrew Carnegie or, you know, somebody like that. Right. But, but it sounds like, it sounds like much like other fields in American history, right? I, I'm almost sensing a kind of sort of social history, right? Of philanthropy. Um, you know, the sort of everyday life, uh, of, of giving, you know, the people, people and, and the sense of, again, this sense of sentiment or affection and so forth, um, seems to really broaden the field a lot more. I mean, I was, I was very surprised when, uh, you know, people like you and others, when my book on the American Bible Society came out, mm -hmm. you know, there was this community of the historians of philanthropy who were really interested in it. And I really hadn't framed the book that way, but, but the more I kind of read up on, on what the kind of work that historians of philanthropists were doing, the more I thought, yeah, this does, uh, this does kind of fit. Yeah, your book is an absolutely a marvelous contribution to understanding that the history of giving uh, in the 19th century, uh, you know, throughout throughout American history. I'm particularly interested in the 19th yeah. century. Uh, you know, the, the American Bible Society was just at the forefront of so many yeah. developments in mobilizing resources uh, and and disseminating information. That absolutely, for me, it's a central organization in the history of philanthropy. Yeah, really interesting. Let's uh, we'll get back to the philanthropy here in a second because I want to hear you talk a little bit about you know how the how the museum uh, the, the Museum of American History handles this subject. 
But you are, uh, your title is Curator of Philanthropy at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Uh, for, those of, uh, for those of our listeners who are not involved in the uh, museum field or unfamiliar with how museums are organized and the kind of staff that work in museums, what is a curator? What, what do you do? What is your day-to-day uh, experience like as a, as a curator at, at a museum like this? Right. So a curator collects, preserves, studies, and makes accessible objects in a museum or a similar type of institution like a historic home. Uh, So our work really boils down to collecting, learning, and sharing. In, in my case, um, as the curator of our, at our National History Museum, I'm responsible for collecting objects that tell the story of American giving from the colonial era to today. And what's really exciting for me is that this is a new collecting initiative for the museum. We don't often add new collecting areas. Now, the museum, of course, has many objects already in the collection that relate to the history of, of philanthropy or giving in some way, but they haven't, these are objects that have not necessarily been collected or understood as being about the history of philanthropy. So what I'm doing is building a collection uh, to um, tell the story of American philanthropy from the beginning to up to contemporary developments. Um, and that means first getting a sense of what we already hold, and then thinking about what else I can collect to further contextualize existing holdings and what the gaps are uh, and what the important contemporary developments are that future historians will want to study. And so, so uh, in addition, a curator exhibits uh, objects. We put, on, we put together exhibitions. We write for the blog. Uh, we do traditional scholarly work to, sh- to share our work with different audiences. Um, we talk. We talk with people to share what we're learning and to ha- also to help gather ideas. That sounds like fun, actually. Um, oh, it's a great job. <laughs> yeah. So, so you do get a chance. You know, I know you're a scholar of this field. Um, you do get a chance to kind of uh, uh, continue your scholarly work as well, much like you would as a, you know, as a kind of uh, academic, right? Yes, absolutely. Oh, that's wonderful. Yes. Yeah. Drew, you had a question. Yeah, well, I mean, you mentioned just collecting these objects for for the purpose of of you know telling the story of the history of philanthropy, and I was just wondering if you could maybe highlight a few of them and kind of give a sales pitch to our listeners about the things if they are interested in this history of philanthropy. You know, what what might they actually see if they go to the national or, or they may be interested in they may be interested in history of philanthropy and they don't even realize it yet. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> <Right>. yeah. <laughs> Well, first I should say, we have an ex- exhibition called Giving in America, which opened in December, and it's the first exhibition here on the history of uh, philanthropy. It, it's organized around four questions. Who, who gives? Why do we give? What do we give? And how do we give? And that is a per- permanent, a long-term exhibition. And then there's also um, a rotating section of that exhibition that l- looks at our um, a yearly... We, we, each year we focus on a particular area of giving. So uh, the rotating section explores that. This year it's giving in the environment, and next year it'll be culture and the art. Uh, If your listeners are interested, they could come check that out in person or online. It's also available online. Um, And what would you see in it? So um, one, uh, the exhibition covers the colonial era to today. And a couple of the things um, that I really like in it are, uh, one is the original mop bucket used in the ALS ice bucket challenge that was so big uh, in, in the summer of 2014. So Jeanette Sinertia, who uh, was the first person to do the ice bucket challenge for ALS uh, because her husband Anthony has ALS, uh, uh, donated the bucket that she used, uh, and it's on display there. And it's right next to a small collection box, what you might call an alms box, from the early to the mid-19th century. Um, And what's interesting about the alms box is, I I think when you look at the exhibition and you see the mop bucket, you think, um, oh, I I know that that's just an ordinary mop bucket, but what made it so effective was social media. It was the use of the innovative technology. Well, the alms box, though you might not think of it this way, was an innovation and a technology in its own day, too. 
in the 18th century, when Benjamin Franklin and his colleagues opened the Pennsylvania Hospital uh, as a public-private partnership in Philadelphia, one of the they needed they so they got money from the state they or excuse me from the colony and they got. Uh, some private money, but they also needed to do more fundraising. So they uh, put these put collection boxes around Philadelphia. And what Franklin found is it wasn't effective because Americans really weren't familiar with it. And they, they weren't familiar with dropping money into those boxes. That remained true uh, into the 19th century. And it's not until the 19th century when this box is from that using these kind of boxes becomes familiar in some communities. And I think it's the um, influence of uh, religious uh, philanthropic organizations like the tract societies and the missionary yeah. societies and the Sunday schools that help familiarize Americans with it because they uh, would have the, the organizations distribute them in local communities to raise funds. And then what was important is that in their promotional literature, the Sunday School Union or the other organizations would explain to people how to use them. Yeah. So it's, 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 again, a story of the use of communication technologies and a sort of ordinary object to raise awareness or raise money for a cause. Let's talk a little bit, uh, Amanda, about some of your own work, your own scholarship uh, in this area. You've written a very important book in the history of philanthropy and I would add in the history of the American Revolution. Uh, the title, again, is From Empire to Humanity, the American Revolution and the Origins of Humanitarianism. Um, for those of uh, for those of our listeners who would be curious about uh, the history of philanthropy and its relationship to the American Revolution, maybe you can explain the connections between those two, uh, those two kind of themes in your subtitle. I'd be happy to. In in the book, I argue that Americans and Britons embraced a universal approach in philanthropy as they became foreigners to one another in the wake of the American Revolution. So the book uh, follows a generation of American and British philanthropists who'd been born a few decades before the American Revolution. It's a story of their lives. Right. Growing up before the Revolutionary Crisis, these men had shared an imperial approach to charitable activity, and they belonged to a transatlantic community, and they, they collaborated in a lot of uh, causes um, across the Atlantic based on a shared concern to strengthen the British Empire. So there were missionary organizations, educational charities, um, and, and other causes. Well, the revolution, of course, fractured their community. They could no longer collaborate on the basis of a shared British um, uh, identity. And, but, but they continued, these the men continue, had grown up in this strong transatlantic community, and they expected to continue collaborating. So they needed to adjust the nature of their philanthropy and also the nature of their relationships as, as they were no longer, had, had gone from being compatriots to being foreigners. Right. So they shifted to embracing a universal approach, um, and they collaborated intensely in causes like medical charity, anti-slavery, prison reform, educational charity, and poor relief. Um, and, and I found that they really uh, remade their relationships as foreigners as, by embracing a universal approach to philanthropy. And so what, what you, you might ask what I mean by universal. Yeah. So for most of the 18th century, aid was typically given on the basis of ethnic or religious or occupational or personal ties. So if you didn't if you weren't part of one of those communities, you could be excluded from aid. Um, and this was a problem in an increasingly mobile uh, world. So in the decades after the American Revolution, Americans and Britons really embraced giving to people without regard to their uh, their background, their ethnic or religious mm -hmm. um, background. Although, although there continue to be charities that give aid on, on those bases, and those are important. But Americans and Britons really embrace and celebrate the idea of giving based on a shared humanity. Amanda, what would be what would be an example, say, of uh, the earlier way, right, giving it based on ethnicity or religion or something particular? Uh, you know, could you give us a, a chat? You know, a, a, a concrete example of, of then the shift to to 
universal, you know, how it would be framed in a more universal way, or are there new organizations that emerge with this universal mission? Um, you know, can you give us some concrete examples of that transition, taking the sort of abstract into the, you know, maybe organizations we might be familiar with or causes we might be familiar with that, that were changed as a result of the revolution? Yes, absolutely. So one example that I've always found really striking uh, was an instance that was written about by a man named Thomas Coram, who was uh, a, a, cap, a sea captain or from, um, well, not a sea captain, who was called Captain Coram. He had a, a career in the maritime trades. Um, mm-hmm. He was British. He spent 10 years living in Massachusetts and intended always to settle in Massachusetts, in North America, but wound up going back to Britain, where he got involved in founding uh, the Foundling Hospital, which is a, a well-known hospital um, for foundlings in mid-18th century London. But he was, so he was very active in, in the world of charity and involved in all sorts of different uh, charitable schemes. Yeah. And one thing he wrote about in one of his letters was that he had seen Americans who were in um, London in the mid uh, 18th century who were in need of charitable aid, um, but weren't eligible. So he suggested to some friends he had back in North America that they should found an organization to aid these Americans who are overseas and, and in distress. And he said that um, a model for that could be the Scots Society in Massachusetts. So Scott, ethnic Scots in Massachusetts had an organization, a charity, to provide for their brethren in need. Right, right. Well, a- after the, uh, actually in the midst of the revolution, another um, British man named John Murray, who um, had spent, who had a lot of family in North America and had spent some time um, in the British Navy traveling in, in parts of America. Um, he founded a Scots society in, in the town he lived in, in Norwich, England. But then over the course of the revolution, he adapted it to being an organization with a universal mission. He called it the Society for Universal Goodwill, and it would help people anywhere in the world, this was the vision, right. who were in distress and, and needed help. Um, well, that didn't, it, didn't, it didn't come to pass, but yeah. uh, it, was, it was too ambitious. But, but that was sort of um, what the shift was. Now, an organization that was successful, that had the same kind of impulse but was more successful than Murray's organization, uh, was organizations called, the, called Humane Societies. Right. These were charities, nothing to do with animals. I was going to say, yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Thanks for clarifying that. (laughs) These were charities that promoted the rescue and resuscitation of drowning victims. This was a waterborne world. A lot of people traveled by the water. They were lived by the water. They they were just near the water more than we were. And and drowning was a concern. And uh, traditionally, um, resuscitation, traditionally people didn't rescue or resuscitate drowning victims for various reasons, including that it was dangerous. Most people could not swim. It was, there was also initially some concern about blasphemy. It was God's will that these people drown and you shouldn't intervene. But, but it, after overcoming some of those concerns, these organizations promoted uh, rescue and resuscitation of drowning victims, encouraged people to rescue peop- drowning victims. And they did so... Um, embracing the idea that anybody could drown and that we all had an obligation to help them. So while it sounds like sort of a niche cause, it was important in promoting this idea that everybody's life was valuable and everybody could be a a rescuer and play a role in saving lives. And and I will say that in uh, the United States, African-Americans were among the rescued and rescuers. And in both cases, when they were rescued or rescuers, their lives and their actions were valued on, on par with, with white Americans. Um, so, while, so it was an important way of, of embracing these new values. One more question about, the, about your work on this. Um, now, now, I remember when reading parts of your book, you're, you're trying to push the kind of history of American uh, philanthropy and humanitarianism sort of further back into history. Uh, if, if, am I right in suggesting that's your kind of contribution here? You're, you're, 
your your contribution to the field in terms of the way uh, you, you're forcing historians to rethink the history of philanthropy? Because most of it is most of it when I think of philanthropy, right, or the history of giving or history of these kinds of things, it usually kicks in, you know, sometime around, you know, what the 1830s, 40s, you know, anti-slavery, um, you know, the reform movements and so forth. Um, but but you're suggesting it goes back a lot earlier than this. Yes. Yes. That that's right. Really, the book starts uh, looking at the late 17th century, so so the last years of the 1600s. Uh, there was a rich um, world of associationalism in the 18th century, yeah. and a lot of uh, this was typically men and elite men. But, or middling to elite men who were involved. Women don't get involved in organized benevolence until the very end of the 1790s. Um, but Americans were familiar with a world of organized charitable activity. They were part of a transatlantic world of organized charitable activity. I think a lot of um, historians of philanthropy tend to look at the revolution as a starting point because right. there is a big outburst of founding organizations after the revolution. Um, and, and there, there was new exhilaration and patriotic fervor and, and new excitement and organizational energy after the revolution for sure. But a lot of those developments built on practices, um, from before the revolution that, that Americans were familiar with. Um, and so I look at the revolution as a turning point, not as a starting point. Sure, sure. Um, now, I know you mentioned before in the answer to one of your previous questions, Amanda, uh, that you you do get some time to continue your work in this field uh, now that you're at the Smithsonian. Um, I remember I remember when we interviewed you on our author's corner on the blog, you told us mm -hmm. about a fascinating new project you're working at, ho working on. Hopefully you'll get hopefully you uh, will continue to have time to do that. But tell us, tell us, um, you know, w what's next for you in terms of the history of philanthropy and your own work? Right. So I am working on a biography of Isabella Graham. Uh, she is one of the few women who features in my first book. She was a Scottish-born uh, woman who, uh, born in the 1740s, followed her husband, who was a British Army physician, to Canada and then to Antigua, where he died. And she was left with a few children and, and not much by the way of resources. She went back to Scotland and was active in charitable activity there and then immigrated in 1789 to New York and spent the rest of her life there. She was one of the leaders of, or, of women's involvement in organized uh, benevolence in the early republic and really a noted philanthropist who influenced both women's and men's uh, philanthropy and, and the charitable infrastructure in New York. She's really fascinating to me because her life is similar in some ways to the lives of the men I studied who circulated around the Atlantic world or across the, to different communities on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, but for, for a lot of the men I study who were, many of whom were doctors, the Atlantic was an exhilarating experience. Traveling around was exhilarating and opened all sorts of new opportunities. For Isabella Graham, it, it left her vulnerable, and I think her charitable innovations are in response to the vulnerabilities she faced as she navigated this uh, mobile world. So that's one thing I'm working on, and then I also get to work on exhibitions here. So I, right. one of the things that's terrific for me is I just have a chance to think uh, about American philanthropy from uh, the 17th century to today. So as I mentioned, next year we'll be exploring culture and the arts, and I'll be, I'm working on an exhibition about uh, cultural and arts-related philanthropy. So get on out to the, uh, if you're visiting D.C., make sure you stop at the National Museum of American History, learn something uh, about the history of philanthropy. This really is like a very fascinating conversation because, uh, you know, it's not very often that we as historians get to to talk to somebody who's, who knows a, a whole subfield that you don't even realize right. is even right. a subfield. You yeah, know? yeah. It's, and, this is and, great. And it, it's really, it must be really thrilling. Now, are, is this a new position at the Smithsonian that's created, uh, or have they had a, a curator of philanthropy? 
this is a new position. It's in the philanthropy initiative is new. So I belong to a, a team um, in the philanthropy initiative. I'm the curator with, as a, I have a colleague who's the program manager and we have, um, there's a annual half day, some, uh, yeah, annual half day symposium. We're looking to add other programming. There's the collecting initiative and then there's my position and the new exhibition. So, uh, but, but yes, this is new. It's, it's, there's not, a, a, people really haven't paid a lot of attention to the history of philanthropy. So I'm really thrilled to have a chance to talk about it with you and, and your listeners. Right. And it, it's one of the things that's really exciting to me is that I, this is a chance for me to learn so much and I, I get, everybody I talk to has a story to share. And so it's incredibly, um, exciting and humbling to to hear all, all American stories about giving. Excellent. Excellent. Our guest today has been Amanda Moniz. She is the David M. Rubenstein Curator of Philanthropy at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. Amanda, thanks so much for taking some time out of your busy schedule to join us today. Thank you so much for having me on the show. You know, listening to Amanda talk, I'm really encouraged by the leadership of the Smithsonian uh, National Museum of American History. They really seem to ex- uh, be interested in expanding their offerings and expanding the way they explain American history to uh, those who kind of come through their doors. It's a free museum, so they, they see a lot of people each year. Um, in addition to this new uh, emphasis on the history of philanthropy, I, I know they've started an American religious history program there under the curator Peter Mansell. So uh, a lot of good things happening at the Smithsonian. If you haven't been there for a while, you, you might want to get over there soon and, and see what's going on. Well, And just in a larger sense, I think we're, you know, maybe this is anecdotal, but I think we're kind of in a golden age of museums or entering one maybe. I'm just seeing yeah. muse- a lot of people are talking about museums. You know, I actually just got tickets for the New African American Museum, right. which, of course, I mean, you know, you have to get tickets months in advance. The you know, there a new American Revolution museum just opened up in Philadelphia. You know, and 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 in a way that that is itself a philanthropy, right? Yeah, this idea yeah. that we're people are donating large amounts of money for the purpose of education, which I think is in a, uh, is encouraging in this moment. We've been talking about that a lot this season. Yeah, I mean, again, we are in a moment, I think, and and you know, we, again, we have talked about this a lot this season, right? A mo- I think it's a moment for history. I think people are starting to see the importance of studying the past and and figuring out how we got to the place that we're in right now. And I think museums then can become, you know, I, I recently read something about museums as a kind of site of resistance, right? As a, as a sort of political site in which one resists uh, the current emperor or the, the <laughs> tyrant, right? Um, but, you know, that, you know, you can think about them in that politicized way. You could also think about them in a kind of less political way, just just contributing um, knowledge to to uh, to the to our democracy, right? Creating informed citizens and so forth, and and forcing especially young people to kind of reconnect with our nation's past. But you know something that kind of connects a little bit to to this to your story that almost gives me maybe a, a an element of concern is is the ways in which it seems like there's a lot of money, a lot of investment, a lot of time, a lot of energy going to some very important large museums, but still across our country we know there are small historical sites, yeah. you know, somewhat less well-known, but equally important historical places throughout throughout our country that, you know, are still, I think, really struggling to get money and to keep their doors open. And this was, I think, the argument we made a few episodes ago when we were talking about the National Endowment for the Humanities uh, and, and how, um, you know, do we trust the capitalists? Do we trust the, the Carnegies of the world, right, to fund, um, you know, these kind of ordinary museums, or I should say museums that reflect uh, ordinary life, local museums, uh, and so forth. And then, you know, another thing, Drew, is just with philanthropy comes sort of certain ideologies, right? You know, people want to fund things that are going to promote their views of the world. And oftentimes, you know, history does not, when done well, I think, doesn't or shouldn't get caught up in some of those uh sort of ideologies. So, you know, I know there's there's big kind of evangelical Christians like the Green family uh, who who throws a lot of, you know, they built this museum of the Bible, right? Or, 
uh, I know the Koch brothers, you know, on the right are, are people who like to fund museums. And, you know, I'm sure there are examples on the left, too. So, uh, you know, there's yeah. with philanthropy comes that sort of careful dance of, you know, especially for history museums. Right. What what are you what are you promoting? You know, and in other words, how are you there's a danger of kind of manipulating the past for some kind of a present day agenda. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you mentioned the, the left or even just the, you know, the revisionist. A lot of casino money coming through uh, Indian reservations is going towards. Um, museum curation. And and on one hand, for me, especially as someone who works in this field, I'm really happy about that because I think it's a history that's untold. And to see that money being um, being channeled into museums that help people understand how rich the indigenous past is in this country, I think that's that's definitely a good thing. That's a great way to use that money in a civically responsible way, a way to, to help us become more informed citizens, as you often say. But I know, you know, some people who like a much more traditional, unrevised story of the American Revolution have have pointed out how the United Nation has given a lot of money to the to the new American Revolution and the new uh, Museum of the American Revolution in, in, in Philadelphia as a point of critique. Frankly, not one I, I agree with, but, you know, um, I mean, that's something at least to, to, to bring up. Go back and look at the blog. There was a piece uh, published by a guy in the conservative Weekly Standard that pretty much trashed uh, the new Philadelphia uh, Museum of the American Revolution, I think very unfairly, mm -hmm. for um, for including these diverse voices. It's kind of something you might expect, you know, from uh, from a conservative, you know, uh, magazine like the Weekly Standard. But uh, I thought it was a very unfair critique. Yeah, but of course, of course, us historians who who think in hashtag vast early America, we want those stories. Exactly. We we want those in the exactly. museum. So I mean, I'm only bringing it up to say that it's it is a point of debate, and yeah. I think it's something that is part of this conversation about museum and philanthropy, museum curation with philanthropy. Yeah, we need to we need to talk to a lot more museum curators, kind of over the years, and get these kinds of perspectives from them. Well, well, Drew, uh, another show in the books. Uh, again, I think this was a good one. Um, so happy to have Amanda Moniz on the show. And uh, hopefully we'll see you down the road somewhere at a, at a museum. Yeah. Uh, you know, we'll bump into you and, and, and talk some history. But in the meantime, may your way of improvement always lead home. This has been a production of The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewayofimprovement.com. This episode is brought to you through the generous support of Lisa DeGuardi, Ron Schooler, and our sponsor, Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice so others may more easily find this podcast. The podcast was recorded at the High Center Studios on campus at Messiah College. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guest, Amanda Moniz. Our studio producer is Josh Lowry. I've been your producer, Drew Durley Hermling, and your host is John Fia. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast.